is taken from Jeremiah chapter 8 verses 4 to 7 and is found on page 765 of the Church Bibles. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When, more, when men fall down, do they not get up? When a man turns away, does he not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit, they refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues his own course, like a ch horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And Martin Luther, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, written in 1521, said, You see, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. In other words, we have as many teachers and preachers as there are little birds of the air, says Luther. Elihu, one of Job's so-called comforters, in chapter, five, chapter 35, 11 of Job says, God our maker, though, teaches more to us than to the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air. So today, we're going to learn from the birds. But before we go get into ornithology, we need to understand the context in which the Bible uses a particular aspect of bird behaviour to illustrate a biblical truth. You see, when we look to the birds, it's not for us to speculate on what aspects of them contain some spiritual truth about the divine human relationship. That approach risks us going off with the fairies. It's an approach where one might sit and reflect on birds in a painting, in a photo, even in a poem, or even in reality. And that stimulates, that triggers off our mental reflection, and we go off into a flight of mental exploration. The results of such exploration are likely to be those of our own creation. A more certain, because it is a more biblical methodology, is to understand the context and see how the inspired biblical writers are using a feature of a bird's behaviour to state a divine revelation, a God-given understanding of the nature of being a human being or of our relationship with him. In the Roman Catholic Church, religious books may be published with the imprimatur of the local bishop. Imprimatur is simply Latin for let it, that's the book, be published. And we'll have a little declaration on the inside saying nihil obstat, which just means nothing objected to, meaning that the book doesn't conflict with the doctrinal and moral teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. 
Well, illustrations from nature in the Bible have received the divine imprimatur. God has inspired the writers to use such illustrations. They express his mind. And he is saying, let everybody know about them. Publish them, which is what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah begins his prophetic ministry with a sustained appeal for repentance. And although his message is directed primarily against the kingdom of Judah, he brackets in chapter 3 of Jeremiah, faithless Israel, the northern kingdom that had been destroyed before, and her faithful, unfaithful sister Judah. Now it's true that under King Josiah, between 620 and 609, um, his reforms had met with some response but it was largely superficial. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 3, just to begin with. Page 758, Jeremiah 3. And God complains in verse 10. He complains when he says, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. You see, from elsewhere in Jeremiah, we know that these people persisted in their sins. We read that they worshipped the foreign deities on the high places. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, it's simply that God sees his relationship with his people of that like a man and his wife. And he says, Jeremiah 3.14, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. For those of you who are in house groups currently studying the book of Hosea, you'll be very familiar with how the Lord uses Hosea's experience of an unfaithful wife to illustrate his own experience with his unfaithful people. And next we know all too well that these people broke the Ten Commandments. We know that the commandments, aren't they? They're in two parts. There's the first four and the second six. The first four are primarily against God. The second six uh, are consequential of that broken relationship because they then spill out to become offences against other people. Worshipping idols is not only disloyal to God, but it is also a way in which we fill the vacuum that we have created in our lives when we abandon God, when we shut him out of our lives, when we drift away from him. We fill that void. We fill that void with gods of our own creation, idols that we fashion to suit ourselves, gods we can control. Take, for example, um, the fertility cults, which were prevalent around Israel and Judah at that particular time. You know, why did they embrace such things? I mean, at one level, they're nonsense. Well, the way they looked at the world, they could see that for their harvest, upon which they were dependent for their survival, they were absolutely dependent on the rains to come at the right time. Without it, there will be no fruitfulness. So they imagined that there was Baal, a male deity, and Asherah, who was, uh, they imagined was a female deity, and that they were gods who had sex with one another, and that was symbiotic, 
of the rains from above enabling the land below to bear fruit. And in their cults, in their high places, they went further. And in Canaanite religion, they reenacted this divine um, intercourse with priests and cultic prostitutes in their temples and high places. And the people will, of course, be drawn to such a cult so that they could engage in sexual immorality, which was religiously legitimized to ease their consciences. The other commandments are all linked. Loyalty to God should satisfy most of our needs, but abandon him and we covet substitutes. King David is a classic example. He covets Bathsheba, then he steals her, who is another man's wife, commits adultery with her, then arranges for her husband to be killed, to cover up his sins whilst lying through the entire process. He has managed to breach five in one go. Five commandments broken, and it all started because he had displaced God. And next, they failed to care for the widow, orphan, and the alien. Now, what do these categories of person have in common? Well, they have someone or something missing. They are incomplete. The widow is missing her husband, the orphan his father, and the alien his home. So, estranged from God, we are like a widow without her husband. The book, The Song of Songs, is all about God's desire for intimacy with his spouse, who is his people. The orphaned, they are adrift in the world. And that is how, spiritually speaking, all of us start off, life, start off in life. And God's desire, his greatest desire, is for him to become our father. So John 1.12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And what about the alien, the stranger, the foreigner? Well, they are not at home with all its comforts. They are in a strange land. Heaven is our intended home to be with God forever. And then they even engaged in the horrors of child sacrifice. Can you believe it? That uh, amongst the kings of Judah, in the 8th century Ahaz and in the 7th century Manasseh, those kings actually carried out child sacrifice. Now there's an early reference to that in the tablets, thousands of them, discovered in a place called Mari in uh, Syria. They date from the 18th century BC, and we read there of child sacrifices offered to their god, Moloch, who among the Canaanites was known as Molech, and whose practices <coughs> infiltrated the people of God, the Israelites. The, uh, I 
and I must have breathed in the fly from the first service that was buzzing around me. Um, now, <coughs> the, Phoenici the Phoenicians were Canaanites who exported this perverse belief to their colony in Car Carthage, which is North Africa, Tunisia. Centuries later, just a couple of centuries later, Jeremiah, um, so a couple of centuries later than Jeremiah, Roman uh, writers make mention of it. Carthaginian children were sacrificed by their parents who would make a vow, would you believe, to kill their next child if the gods would grant them a favour. For example, in their literature, that their shipment of goods would arrive safely in the foreign port that they were sent to. And what they did was this. They placed their children alive in the arms of a bronze statue of the Lady Tanit. The hands of the statue extended over a brazier into which the child fell once the flames had caused its limbs to contract and its mouth to open. The child was alive and conscious when burned. The Roman writer Philo writes with disapproval when he says that the offering of the child was the God's best love sacrifice. Later commentators have compared the accounts of child sacrifice in the Old Testament with similar ones from Greek and Latin sources. And uh, Clitarchus, who um, wrote a commentary on Plato's book, The Republic, in the 4th century, he mentions this practice. He says, there stands in their midst a bronze statue of Kronos, its hands extended over a bra bronze brazier, the flames of which engulf the child. When the flames fall upon the body, the limbs contract, and the open mouth seems almost to be laughing until the contracted body slips quietly into the brazier. Thus it is that the grin is known as sardonic laughter, since they appear to die laughing. Well, sardonic comes from Sardinia. In Sardinia there is a toxic plant which, if you eat, results in you grasping for breath. And as you're dying, it looks as if you are smiling, when in fact you're doing nothing of the kind. Plutarch, in his book on superstitions of the ancient world, also mentions this practice in Carthage. They themselves offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats, as if like many lambs and young birds. No wonder the Lord was so strong in his judgment on such practice, when the, whether they were the perpetrators of uh, the, the, the Canaanites in Joshua's day in his invasion, or whether they were Israelites of the 8th or 7th century. It was a capital offence in the law of Moses if anyone sacrificed a child to Molech. We are all too sadly aware today of where either a warped view of a God of human creation or the denial of the revealed God can lead. It leads to the destruction of human beings made in the image of God and therefore given significance.
they matter to him. Those without the true view of God can be awfully destructive of human life. But although Jeremiah exposed such evils, these people refused to repent. Now in these few verses, Jeremiah 8, 4 to 7, the prophet adds metaphor to metaphor in an attempt to prick Judah's conscience. Most telling of all his metaphors is the behaviour of migratory birds. Here are the words of God which um, he gave to speak, um, gave Jeremiah to speak in the 7th century. And they may well in fact be the first reference to bird migration in the literature of the ancient world. Although two centuries before, Homer in the Iliad had likened the retreating Trojan army to a flight of cranes heading south before winter. This is what Jeremiah writes and Barak records. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues their own course, like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Palestine was and is a corridor of bird migration. Jeremiah had evidently noticed that many birds fly south in the autumn through the Bosphorus, across Turkey, down through Palestine and the Nile Valley to winter in the warm climate of Africa. But when the spring arrives, they all without fail return, flying north and then fanning out either west into Europe or east into Asia to nest. God's people, however, had gone away, but they had not returned. Jeremiah singled out storks. The Hebrew words translated dove, swift and thrush are less certain. You see, they only occur once in the Old Testament. The word that is used doesn't have a contemporary use. Therefore, it is incredibly difficult on the basis of that, although you know it's a bird because of the context, to work out what that word corresponds to in terms of actual species. But them that know, who are called Semitic philologists, those who study the languages of the Semites, and the Semites are not just Jews, the Semites are Jews, Arabs, Ethiopians, Assyrians, Akkadians, Chaldeans, and dozens more who have Semitic languages. And they reckon that it's a pretty safe bet that what we're talking about here are white storks, a word which occurs five times in the Old Testament. And white storks are an excellent example. In the early morning in spring in Israel, they feed in the fields and in the dikes, the irrigation dikes. And when the sun gets hot, thermal currents lift them and they soar to considerable height, 4,000 feet or more, before heading north to continue their journey. From their wintering grounds in southern Africa to their bulky rooftop nests in northern Europe, they fly some 8,000 miles 
their long legs trailing behind them and their long necks stretched out in front of them. And it's reckoned that each spring and each autumn, half a million white storks migrate over the Middle East. They go and they return. The tragedy of God's people was that they had gone away but had not returned. Now all over the world, this mysterious migration, north-south, south to north, is a pattern which is repeated year in, year out. So it is that birds observe the time of their migration and do so with extraordinary regularity and precision. If only we had as powerful an instinct to return to God as storks have to return to their breeding grounds in the spring. And what birds do by instinct, something which is inbuilt into them, their inherited navigation skills, which even today scientists have not totally managed to fathom out. If what birds do by instinct, we human beings, we should do by deliberate choice. We should return from our self-centred ways to the living God, our Creator. We should not imagine, however, that repentance is only an initial act which never needs to be repeated. For the sad truth is that we often stray from God in disobedience. And as a consequence, we need to keep returning to him. To quote Jeremiah in chapter 8 again, God speaking, say to them, this is what the Lord says, when people fall down, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. Now here the prophet uses illustrations from the anthropological life rather than ornithological behaviour. You see, as human beings, when we stumble and fall, he says, we don't wallow in the dirt or the mud, we get on our feet again immediately. We clean ourselves up and we resume our journey. Similarly, if we take the wrong turning, we do not persist in it. As soon as we realise we've gone astray, we turn around and we retrace our steps. The same principle applies to our walk with God. The people of Israel in Jeremiah's day were perverse and obstinate, incurable in their waywardness, as one translation puts it. We must not follow their bad example. Instead, if we fall, we must get up at once and go on. If we turn away from him, we must turn back to him at once. It is always foolish to delay. We shouldn't postpone our repentance if we have had a twinge of conscience, if we know that we're in the wrong about something. We should not postpone our repentance and our confession, whether it's postponed to our next communion service, whether it's postponed to our next church gathering, whether it's postponed to when we have the routine of praying at the end of the day. Wise Christians will not procrastinate but repent, confess, and seek restoration immediately.
And what a very helpful are the penitential psalms, especially Psalm 51, which is uh, what David wrote after he realised how he breached those five commandments so awfully. And also, for example, Psalm 130. They help us express our contrition. The more we recognise that God is the true home of the human spirit and that we are waifs and strays without him, the more quickly and painfully will we become aware of even the smallest estrangement from him and the more eagerly will we return to him. For when we come back, we come home. Let's pray. Well, as we reflect upon these few words of Jeremiah, and we learn the divinely pointed out lessons from the stalk, Maybe we are conscious of some uh, sin that we do need to repent of, to be contrite, to make amends. Well, Psalm 130 may well be helpful as we reflect on that. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, by which he means the people of God. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, for he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen.